Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. We're picking up a, a little section that we have been looking at when it comes to leadership, talking about the qualities of a genuine shepherd, a sincere and faithful shepherd. I think if you were to talk to any leader in any organization, at least one who knows what they're doing, they would tell you of the value of trust. There is an old model that might have put trust in power, but those who really understand leadership understand the power of trust. They know that if their, if their organization is going to have any kind of cohesiveness and any kind of success in its mission, it's going to have to be built on this. Always, and especially in the church, is that true? Trust in leadership is essential for the sake of the mission, which is the gospel. And it's for that reason that Satan has always had his attacks against leaders. And it was no different, certainly, in Paul's day than it is in our own day, as Paul found himself to be the, the object of assault and attack over and over again. He lived, it seemed, under a constant barrage of attacks against his credibility, often having to defend this against his critics, against his detractors, disparaging his character. And he was forced, unfortunately, to these situations where he had to defend himself. Because he understood that if he just sat by and allowed that to happen, if people could successfully undermine trust in him, it would eventually undermine trust in his message, in his preaching, in his gospel. And so, for the sake of the faithfulness of the truth that he preached, he was forced into this. At times, as he tells even the Corinthians and the Galatians, feeling foolish. He felt exposed having to talk about these things. He would have rather talked about something else. It was, it was certainly not on his heart to have so much focus on him, but he understood the importance of this. And so what we find in the letters of the New Testament in Galatians and Philippians and Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, even the pastoral epistles to some extent, what we find are these records of Paul defending himself again and again and again. And in God's providence and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those things were recorded for us, for our benefit, for our consideration, for our study that we might have some way in our minds to crystallize what spiritual leadership ought to look like. Those leaders in whom we ought to put our trust. The ones who are set by God's grace in our lives. We've been looking at this section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in this effort of Paul to defend his integrity and taking note then of the picture of a shepherd that he's painting for us here. And looking at what we started a couple weeks ago, a number of qualities that Paul talks about in his own life that help us really to evaluate any shepherd, any pastor, any spiritual leader, a picture of what a shepherd whose life validates his ministry what that looks like. And just to remind you, I know I've spent some time in the past weeks talking about the historical situation behind all of this, but to understand what Paul's saying here and why he's saying it, it's critical that we keep that historical situation always in our view. 
Paul had come to Thessalonica, you remember, from Philippi, where in Acts 16 it's recorded for us, he had been falsely accused of a crime, falsely accused of advocating things he didn't advocate, of calling for customs that were against the laws of Rome. And then based on that false accusation, he, he was drug out in the, into the public marketplace, literally, literally stripped naked in front of everyone, beaten with rods, and thrown into jail where he was put into stocks. The Lord rescued him from that, and in spite of the unjustness, it was against the law, as a matter of fact, what they did to Paul. He was a Roman citizen and, and without having a trial at all, having been thrown in prison, it was, the, it was the leaders of Philippi who were guilty. And yet, in spite of all that, they realizing what they do, they still pleaded with him to leave their city because they were just fearful of the whole ruckus of the thing. They just wanted to get rid of the problem. And so they just begged Paul to leave so there wouldn't be any more riots. Just quiet the situation down. After visiting with the church, once he's released from prison, he does that and he he arrives in Thessalonica and begins reasoning in their synagogues where once again opposition arises. But his opponents, instead of just taking Paul on in public dialogue, instead of just entering into the synagogue and trying to discuss the things that related to the gospel, they were told in Acts 17, they went around the city and began to round up a ragtag group of good-for-nothing men. Luke actually calls them wicked men of the rabble. And they go around and they convince all of these unrelated people to gather together into a mob and to go and to attack the host home where Paul was staying. They go, they drag these people who were hosting Paul, apparently he wasn't there when they came, they dragged them before the city authorities, and once again, they smear Paul's name, they falsely accuse him of treasonous acts, of calling for acts against Caesar, decrees against Caesar, and then the city leaders force the church there to put up a financial bond to guarantee that there wouldn't be any more riots stirred up by Paul or by his associates. Paul knew there's no way he could guarantee that. There's no way that he could silence his enemies who were so far against him. And, and he knew how easily they could go out and create another riot, pin the blame on him. And the Christians and the church, because of that, would lose their, their bond, if you will, their financial stake in this, they would be ruined financially. And so he left Thessalonica, if you will, under the cloud of darkness. Made his way down the road to Berea. But Paul's enemies from Thessalonica weren't content that he had just simply left. They weren't content to just let that be the end of it. Even after he's gone, they, they pursued him. They went down to Berea and tried to stir up as much opposition as they could against Paul. They were intent not on just having them out of their lives personally. They were intent on destroying his ministry. And so they went down to Berea. They did the same kind of thing. They stirred up people against Paul. They made false accusations. They stirred up all kinds of discontent against Paul. And they ended up having, uh, forcing him to, to have to leave Berea as well. 
So you can imagine in Paul's mind as he has now traveled down to Corinth and, and, and to Athens and then Corinth, you can imagine in his mind that there's this fear that once he left Thessalonica, that these people would not stop. They wouldn't stop attacking him. Just like they went down to Berea to stir up opposition against him there, he knew that they would go back to Thessalonica, they would continue to stir up opposition against him, they would falsely accuse him of acting against the decrees of Caesar, they would probably come up with other things, and then they would try to further intimidate the believers in the church to abandon the church and to give up their faith, to turn their backs on the gospel and on Christ. And so when he Arrived in Athens, we're told, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Sent him there to find out if, in fact, all of this, all these fears that he had in his heart and mind were taking place. And in chapter 3 of Thessalonians here, he describes how Timothy returns with a report, not only of their steadfast faith, but also of their ongoing affection. And how they kindly remembered Paul from his days, from his few months together with them. And he also brought, no doubt, some reports of some of the kinds of things that they were saying, his enemies were saying, about Paul and Silas back in Thessalonica. These weren't necessarily the things that we see in the book of Acts, but these were apparently the things that they continued to say after he had left. And so he writes this letter to defend himself against these kinds of accusations. And he addresses a number of things in his own life and his own ministry primarily by means of their first-hand knowledge of him. Their first-hand knowledge of his life appealing again and again and again to what they know. And he says it back in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 1, over and over again as you move through the context, he continues to remind them, these are the things you know, just as you know, just as you remember, he says. And he presents through this a number of qualities that reflect the life of a true shepherd, a true minister of the gospel. The first one we saw a couple of weeks ago, was his courage in the face of opposition. He reminds them in verses 1 and 2 that his coming was not in vain. It wasn't pointless because he and Silas had a kind of boldness. He reminds them of the circumstances where they had come from out of Philippi, suffering physically and being publicly shamed in Philippi. But once he came to Thessalonica, God, he says, gave him a boldness to speak to declare the gospel of God to them. And what you see in Paul's life here is the same thing you see in the life of every true shepherd, which is the boldness to speak the truth when it needs to be spoken, to to particularly articulate it in the face of oppositions, in the face of, of attempts to undermine the truth. There's always pressure to placate sinners, to avoid offense, to keep people happy. But genuine shepherds, they understand what's at stake at those times. They understand the power of the gospel and of God, and so they show courage to speak the truth when it's necessary. And then, and Paul moves on from that, and he highlights, secondly, not only that courage, but in verses 3 and 4, he is, his, his motivations 
or as we might say, his dependence on God's approval. He wasn't motivated, as he says, to please people. His motivation was to please God. He speaks about it in verse 3, about his appeal or his message. Uh, an appeal which, by the way, in chapter 4, he says in verse 1, his appeal was simply to, to them to how they ought to walk, how they ought to please God. That's what, that was his message. I mean, it's incredible that that would come under attack, and yet that's what his enemies did because that was not their concern. Their concern wasn't with how people please God. Their concern was with their own prominence, with their own standing, their own position, their own following. And they knew that Paul was taking people away from the synagogue and from their their kingdom, if you will. And so Paul tells them, look, this is our appeal. It didn't, it didn't spring from error. It didn't come from impurity. It wasn't out of any attempt to deceive, whether intentionally or unintentionally. It wasn't some trick of cleverness based on some impure motive. Paul says it was none of that. Rather, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul basically turns the case over to God. He knows what they've said about him. He knows that they've called him a deceiver. He knows that they have attempted to pin all kinds of these accusations on him, but he simply appeals to God. He says that God has approved him. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In fact, he uses the word twice here. It's first part of the verse, it's translated approved. At the end of the verse, it's translated as test, the same basic word. He says, God tests our hearts. So God has tested us and God has accepted and endorsed and approved us. And the implication that he makes here is that that's really all that matters. I mean, God's approval is really all we care about. He's the only person that we're trying to please. Sure, I understand I'm going to make these other people angry, but my primary motivation is to please God. There's no need then for deceit. There's no place for impure motives because God sees our heart. He is the one who tests our hearts. He is the only one who makes that kind of judgment. He's the only one who can either approve or disapprove on that level. And he says, in this case, God has approved us. Now you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good when people however, are attacking your truthfulness and your honesty doesn't do you a lot of good to simply say that you aren't a deceiver and God's approved you. But Paul isn't just making that claim. He's actually calling on God as a witness. In fact, he says down in verse 5, at one point, he just calls, God is a witness for these things. And so his ultimate defense that he points them to is that he's been approved by God. He puts his case in God's hands because God is the one who truly knows his heart. God is the one who truly judges those things. He is in control of it. And God 
will entrust the gospel only to those whom he knows will care for it. That's what he's saying. God will entrust the gospel only to those that he knows will care for it. And so the implication is that if God has rejected him in his heart, God would not entrust him with the gospel. God would take the gospel, if you will, because he cares for it. He would remove this duty from Paul and and discharge him of his responsibilities and withdraw the ministry of the gospel from him. But Paul says God hasn't done that. He's tested our hearts, he knows our hearts, and he continues to entrust the gospel to us. And so the obvious question is, how do you know that? How do you know, Paul, that you have been entrusted with the gospel? I mean, anyone can make that claim. Anyone can say that kind of a thing. Even in, in Corinth, uh, Paul, Paul's own enemies would make claims of being uh, apostles. I mean, anybody can say anything. How can you know this, Paul? Well, for Paul, it comes down to this. It comes down to the power of the gospel. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, this was the opening emphasis in his letter. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This was his defense. Not that he simply spoke the right words. He says, we didn't just simply come before you with a bunch of words and you could sort of examine those words. That's not what our ministry was all about. He says that when we spoke, God attended those words with power. The Word of God flowed powerfully from Paul's ministry. As he told the the Corinthians at one point, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. He's saying, look, there's some people who might wow you with their wisdom and with their words, but what I came to you with was power and with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing he's telling the Corinthians, uh, the Thessalonians here. They had personally experienced it. They could remember it. They could reflect back on it. What they heard from Paul was not just some message that tickled their ears. It wasn't just some plausible argument, some interesting facts. It was a message that penetrated to their hearts and transformed their lives. And this was the defense that you see Paul making again and again in his ministry. He makes his appeal to the presence of the power of the gospel in his life and in his ministry. It manifested itself to those who heard him, who sat under his teaching, his, his uh, uh, preaching, all of that. Their life became the mark of his ministry. You may remember in 2 Corinthians 3, if you have your Bibles, turn over there because... It's one of the clearest demonstrations of this in Paul's life as he is in another situation there in Corinth where he's having to defend his integrity against attacks. He sort of articulates some of those at the end of chapter 2. But in chapter 3, he says to them, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? For you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. People who had followed Paul in Corinth, they came trying to undermine his ministry there, saying once again that he was a peddler, that he had ulterior motives. You know, he he talks about it over in chapter 4, verse 2. We've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, refusing to practice cunning or tamper with the word of God. Those were the kinds of things they were accusing him of. And his defense in the midst of all this wasn't, some, wasn't to, to, to trot out some sort of credentials. It wasn't to go out there and seek other letters of commendation from anyone. But he makes his appeal directly to the work that had been done in their lives. He says there was a letter... But it was a letter of transformed lives, and its author was Christ. He was the one who did the work. It was the Holy Spirit working through us. A letter, he says in verse 3, that was from Christ. Paul says, my letter isn't written on a piece of paper with ink and quill. My letter is written with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit alive in you right now. And there is a decisive and compelling proof of the authenticity of my life in that letter. He's basically telling the Corinthians the same thing he's telling the Thessalonians. When I came and preached the Word of God, the Spirit of God used that. He moved through that and you were transformed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were saved. God worked in your life through that ministry, through that word, through that preaching. And it produced something in you. It produced a letter that we can now point to and can be read by everyone. All they have to do is look around at you, the Corinthians, or you, the Thessalonians. This is the proof of my ministry, he says. So when Paul tells the Thessalonians, my heart has been tested by God and I've been entrusted with the gospel, the way they know he's been entrusted with the gospel is simply the reflection on what God's done in their lives. They had firsthand knowledge of the way the Lord had worked. They could think back through all the times that they had spent with him over and over again and recall how the Lord had worked through Silas and through him. So Paul's authenticity, back over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, his authenticity is in how the Lord entrusted the gospel to him and used him in this transforming ministry in the lives of others. You can argue with Paul, you could argue against him, you could make all kinds of accusations, but you can't argue against the fruit, the evidence in their lives. It was in the courage they showed in the face of opposition. It was in the transforming power of the Word in His ministry. Those were the the evidences. By the way, these were the two primary things that Paul turned to even in the Corinthian church. He pointed to not only that power of the gospel making them a living letter of recommendation, but he also pointed to the fact that he was willing to suffer and endure opposition for the sake of the ministry. 
And the implication is that those who are not true shepherds don't hang around during those times. They're not willing to endure the hard times and the hardships and to go along for the faithfulness of the gospel. Over in 2 Corinthians, again, if you go back to chapter 11, Paul talks about this there. He, he'll, you'll forgive me if I've read this to you already, but it's one of the most important points that Paul makes about the genuineness of his life. One of the points he makes so strongly in 2 Corinthians is the point he makes with the Thessalonians about his own endurance and his own suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul says in verse 12, he says, What I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their, uh, in their boast, boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he goes on to say, verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, But even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I might boast a little bit too, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. In other words, Paul saying, I don't want to talk about this claim that I have of authenticity. I don't want to talk about myself. This is foolishness. It's regretful. He says, however, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. You bear it if someone makes slaves out of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on airs and strikes you in the face. To my shame, he says, we're too weak for that. But whatever, what, whatever anyone dares to boast of, I speak as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He says, I know it. And then he begins in verse 23. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, And apart from these things, there's a daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Again, you hear this appeal to God. And he's saying, look, yes, uh, you want to say I'm weak? Yes, I'm weak. You want to say I'm foolish? Yes, I'm foolish. But the one thing I have going for me was this willingness to endure whatever it took for the sake of the ministry, for the sake of the message. I would die, he says, if necessary for this. So this is where Paul is with the Thessalonians. Back over there, 
He begins this chapter talking about how he had suffered in Philippi. They knew it. They understood it. They had seen it. They had, had, had witnessed this. This was the credibility to which he appealed. And then, and then here in verses 3 and 4, he talks about the power of the gospel. How he had been entrusted with the gospel. This was the validation And then a third quality of a genuine shepherd that we can pick up from Paul's defense here, and it works closely with what he's already said here. In fact, it kind of restates similar ideas when he speaks in verses 5 through 7 about the sincerity of his service. The sincerity of his service. He says, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul, what he had said in a general way in verses 3 and 4 about error and deception, how he had not come in any of those ways, he now takes on more specifically. And he's aware that his critics have accused him of these things, coming with words of flattery, uh, coming to butter people up, to somehow uh, uh, foist some sort of plot on them to gain their favor and gain power over them. That's not the way a genuine shepherd operates. You might see it in the disingenuous, you might see it in the phony, you might see it in the hypocritical leader, but you, you would never see this in a, a true leader. The phony leader might come and they would never say the hard things to you, they would never say the difficult things to you, they would never spend the time with you to, to dive into the details there. Their lips when they speak are just simply full of faint praise and flattery. They're like the religious leaders who came to Jesus and, and what did they say? Teacher. Matthew 22, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. So they would stand up in a public place and they would give praise to Jesus and then they would turn around behind his back and plot against him. These were the kind of hypocrites that Jesus called out again and again. But Paul says he wasn't like that. He understood the proverb. That whoever rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. So he didn't come with flattery. He didn't come just buttering them up. And secondly, he says that we didn't come with a, a pretext for greed, a cloak, literally a covering. Using our ministry, our position, our, 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 our influence or whatever it might be, our access to the funds. We didn't use any of that as some sort of avenue or vehicle for improper desire for material gain. We didn't come with that kind of a pretext. The hypocritical leader, the disingenuous leader might do that. They always are concerned about those kinds of things. They talk about it. They even boast about it. You hear it going on in their life and in their lips because that's where their heart is. As Jesus says in Matthew 15, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And one of the things that's in the heart, Jesus says, was greed, is greed. And so when you're around them, their conversations are full of this. They're filled with discussions about material gain and about their own wealth and about their own success. They want to be praised, and this is the one of the ways they do it. Paul says that wasn't our approach. Nor do we come, he says, with some sort of impure desire for personal glory. 
self-absorbed cravings for prominence. That's what he says. We didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We didn't throw our weight around. We didn't throw around our title. We didn't go around drawing attention to the fact that we were apostles or pastors or, or whatever it might be. It's not the way a genuine shepherd operates. The hypocritical leader does that. The phony leader does that. Always drawing attention to their title. Always drawing attention to their position. You hear it on their lips. They love to be called rabbi or teacher. They loved respectful greetings in the public arenas, as Jesus said. And if you don't give it to them, they get annoyed and they get frustrated. Because that's why they are doing what they're doing. Paul says we didn't demand any of that, although we had a rightful claim to authority as apostles of Christ. We weren't illegitimate in that. But we didn't do any of it. In contrast to all that, in contrast to all the flattering speech and all the pretext for greed and all the the desire and demands for personal praise and applause, throwing around our authority and our position, Paul says we actually proved to be gentle in the ministry, tenderly caring for you as a mother cares for her own children. This image that Paul paints here of a tender mother nursing her children, nothing could be more genuine, nothing could be more sincere. I mean, this is a kind of image that eradicates all pretense of all self-glory. It communicates the most genuine concern for the most tender and weak of brothers and sisters. And Paul says this is the way we conducted ourselves. We didn't add any unnecessary burden to you. You remember Jesus' words to to the lawyers and the experts in the word of God or the experts in the law of God. He says, woe to you lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so you just get a picture of the lives of these men who, on the one hand, place these unbearable burdens on people. On the other hand, they don't do anything in their personal lives to lift a finger to do anything about it. When people falter or fall, they kick them to the curb. Whenever they stumble, it just is another reason for these leaders in their self-righteousness to boast of their own goodness. Jesus using this image that would have been common in the day. Pictures a beast of burden, a mule or a donkey or a camel or whatever it may be, loaded down with food or water or some other baggage. You've probably seen the images yourself even in the Middle East today. They'll put just enormous, enormous loads We saw one on our trip to Israel, a guy with a camel loaded down with a burden that was as wide as the street. And there was the owner walking alongside carrying nothing, whipping, scolding the animal to keep moving. No concern for his feelings. No concern for his welfare. That's the way these religious leaders would treat those under their spiritual care. They piled heavy loads, not only of religious duties and demands, but even their own self-made religious rules, their own sort of legalistic structures. 
And then Jesus says on top of that, they, they always demanded the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. If you didn't give them that, they would beat you some more. And then later in Luke, he says they would devour widows' houses. And as a pretense, they would make long prayers. They were very skilled in their prayers. They could make these long prayers in front of people. But all the while, they were, they were consuming widows' houses. These people never personally invested in anyone. They never had any sign of personal care and personal concern. There certainly was no gentleness like a nursing mother with her baby. None of that was a part of their lives in Israel. But this was Paul's ministry. It was full of mercy. It was full of compassion. If you have your Bibles, look over at James chapter 3. James kind of heightens our discernment in this. It's interesting. It comes in chapter 3 at the end of an entire chapter where he's talking to teachers. Let not many of you become teachers, brothers, because there will be a stricter judgment, he says at the beginning. And then he says down in verse 13, Who's wise, who's understanding among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then down in verse 17, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the kind of leader that Paul was. When he came to them, he didn't come to them berating them, beating them, laying burdens on them that, that he didn't care a whit whether or not they could handle. He personally invested in them. Poured his life into them. In fact, that takes us to the fourth quality of a genuine shepherd. As Paul mentions it in verse 8, and that is his unreserved love. His unreserved love for them. Listen to what he says there in verse 8. He says not only was he there like a gentle nursing mother, but he says being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is the way Paul calls on them to judge his life and his ministry. It wasn't just the mere words, you know, just coming with the words. It was the power of the gospel. It was his courage in the face of opposition. It was his willingness to continue put his reliance on God and 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 disregard the praise of men that's not what he was about and here it is his unreserved love he wasn't just teaching his ministry wasn't just words on a sunday it was his life it was access to his life You saw Him live out the gospel in front of you. You were with Him in meals, in private settings. You saw the way He reacted. You saw His example and it became a part of the message that He preached. Paul's saying, think back to the time that you were with me. Think back to what you remember. In fact, back in verse 5, when they were talking about His life, He says, we never came to you with all this stuff, this flattery, 
This greed, that's a word that emphasizes the comprehensiveness of the time. He doesn't want him to think just about that, that moment, those tumultuous events that sprung up where people chased him out of the city. He wants them to think back over the entire time that they knew him. He wants them to evaluate all of his life and remember the gentleness and the tenderness with which he ministered to them. The kind of sincerity in his service. He wasn't about personal pleasure or personal luxury or personal fame. He was intent on giving them not only the gospel, but his whole life. It's one of the key things for a shepherd. This is why, if you remember, in First Thessalonians chapter 3, a, a, a shepherd, one of the qualifications of a leader is he has to be what? Hospitable. He has to be open in his life. Welcoming, not just to his closest knit friends, but to everyone. In fact, the word hospitable is the word philozenos, lover of strangers. He's going out of his way. One of the things you see in the life of a genuine shepherd is going out of his way to the people who are on the fringe, who are on the periphery, pursuing them, going after them, drawing them in into his life. You'll know the kind of shepherd because he's the one who's pursuing those kinds of people. And he's pouring not just into them some Sunday morning lecture or some you know, midweek whatever. He's pouring his life into them. The gospel ministry is validated not just by the words but by the example. It would be like trying to parent on a once a week basis, dropping in, doling out a few rules to your kids and telling them you'll see them next week. There's no way that can be a successful venture. Parenting is your life. It is, it is your kids not just hearing what you say to do, but seeing you do it. You talk to them about prayer life, they need to see you praying. You talk to them about reading the scripture, they need to see you reading it. You talk to them about sharing the faith, they need to see you doing that. Serving in the church, they need to see an example of that. You talk to them about gentleness in speech and you yell and scream. You talk to them about reconciliation and you're at odds with everyone in the household. You talk to them about generosity and all they see you is clenched fist and selfish. Your message is going nowhere. Your parenting, like shepherding, is your words and it's your life. And one of the strongest things you have is access. Seeing you on a day-to-day basis. Being together with you. This is why leaders have to be accessible. This is why shepherds have to be in the lives of their people. This is why flat screen preachers don't work. Because shepherding is close quarters. Genuine shepherds do this. Jesus took the twelve to himself and he walked with them everywhere. His disciples knew him intimately. And Paul is saying to them, you know me. I imparted to you not only the gospel, but my own life. I was 
transparent. These are the kinds of things that are necessary if you're going to have trust. And trust is necessary if the gospel is going to go forward. If the mission is going to be accomplished. It has to be there. And we have to know where to find it. We have to know how to evaluate it. What to look for. And the kind of leaders that the Lord is calling around us. There's more. Thankfully, we'll have some time next week to be able to finish it up going down through the 12th verse. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful your word comes to us with always so much relevance and so much truth. It speaks to us and impacts us, calling us to discernment and wisdom, calling us to follow the example, calling us to the kind of life, the kind of teaching that's demonstrated not only in the lives of the apostles, but the life of our Savior. We're so grateful that He was a good shepherd. So grateful that He gave us not only the gospel, but His own life. We heard the gospel through Him and we saw the gospel in Him. Make us that kind of people, Lord. All those that we minister to, all those that we speak to. May we be willing to open up our life, make ourselves ready to exemplify what we preach. And as we do it, Lord, I pray that you would rid us of every impure motive, that our dependence would always be upon you, and it is you that we seek to please. And may you validate us with the power of the gospel, with the entrusting of it to us again and again. Keep us faithful, Lord. And may we always, always seek to please you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.